Thank you very much. First, a quick word about what I do. I have the pleasure of having a ringside seat and playing a role in probably the greatest scientific revolution in history. I refer to the extraordinary revolution in molecular genetics that began in the 1950s with the discovery of the structure of DNA and has picked up steam ever since, most recently having exploded in human genome project and more generally the field of genomics. The revolution is akin to the revolution in chemistry at the end of the last century with the discovery of the periodic table as a complete description of all of the components of matter, all of the basic elements. And so too, genome projects are giving us complete descriptions of all of the components of human heredity. Capturing in three billion letters, fitting snugly on one CD-ROM, all of the components for human life. Not just the components, but this field is exploding into understanding the circuitry of life and the variation amongst human beings. How our genomes differ and produce the wonderful diversity that we see, as well as much diversity we don't see in our particular risks for genetic diseases. We hope to use all of these tools to understand the basis of biology, the basis of genetic disease, and to use it to plan rationally therapies and cures for diseases. This sort of revolution will change everything. But I'm not here to really talk about the human genomic revolution because I have a different and a rather special responsibility. As the only of the adult honorees here this year who was a former student honoree, I think I should talk from that perspective. I came here as a high school student in 1974, a quarter century ago. It's a little scary thinking about that. It was quite an eye-opener for me. I was a lower middle class kid from Brooklyn, and I must say I found the meeting, which was in Salt Lake City, Utah, very different from my hometown. The range of students was remarkable. I encountered for the first time in my life people who had never heard of a bagel. <laughs> it was a wonderful, I think there are now bagels in Salt Lake City, but it was a wonderful experience. What I want to do is sketch that path from the high school student of 25 years ago to today. And it's a personal story, and I hope it's one that somewhat upsets your own ideas about how lives are organized. How does one become a scientist in the midst of a scientific revolution? Well, lives are not particularly straight and narrow. Much more than folks admit, they are random walks. And yet there are advice for random walkers. Initially, my path was straight and narrow. I was a math whiz and a captain of the math team at Stuyvesant High School and the valedictorian of my high school class. I was a math major at Princeton and the valedictorian of my graduating class. I got a Rhodes Scholarship, went to Oxford, got my PhD in mathematics, and got the thesis prizes for the best thesis in mathematics in some abstract theory called algebraic coding theory. And I was obviously on a track to be a pure research mathematician. There was only one problem. I didn't want to be a pure research mathematician. See, mathematics is a very heady business. It's very beautiful, very wonderful, and very deep business. But it's also a very personal business. It is a very monastic profession. And I'm not a very good monk. But I hadn't really thought about what I wanted to do because I had such clear expectations based on my success. Expectations from others and expectations from myself. Truth was, I had no clue what I wanted to do. Thank goodness for the distractions that had occurred along the way because they made all the difference. Journalism, my first week in college coming back from a play, I stepped in for a beer and pretzels at the college newspaper and stayed for four years. I, loved journalism. I spent much of my college days writing for the paper, although I had nothing to do with my major in mathematics, and it got in my blood. I took journalism courses from great writers like John McPhee and strung during the summers for Business Week. 
from working on the paper, I got interested in polling and started the first public opinion poll at the newspaper, organizing colleges on the East Coast to poll in the 1976 presidential election. George Gallup's operation was located in Princeton. I talked him into helping us do this. From that, I bumped into professors in political science and statistics and made all sorts of connections with them and economists. When I got to Oxford in my spare time, I decided to take a little time off from all this mathematics, you can't do too much of it in a day, and drop in on courses in economics. And I sat in on courses from Amartya Sen, who recently won a Nobel Prize in economics, and was fascinated by all this. So when I got to the end of my PhD and I didn't know what I wanted to do, I said, well, maybe I'll do something really useful in all this economics, which had come from a long, circuitous path of random events during my education up to then. I didn't know how to do it, but I decided I'd do it in Boston. I do it in Boston because there were a lot of smart people in Boston, and the only bit of knowledge I could, I could, the only bit of wisdom I could extract was that being around a lot of smart people, you have a lot of productive collisions. Good things happen. So I went back to my college professors, not in mathematics, but the ones I'd met from economics and polling and, and statistics, and they kindly arranged for me to somehow get an interview at the Harvard Business School. And somehow, don't ask me how, they hired me with no particular qualifications to teach managerial economics to the, managerial, to the um, graduate students in business at the Harvard Business School. I didn't know anything about managerial economics, but luckily neither did the students. I threw myself into it with tremendous passion, became known as a great teacher, very popular. I loved the students. I loved the intensity around the teaching. But after a year or so, I also knew that this wasn't really what I wanted. The research component was missing. The, the chasing after mysteries was missing. So what had I done? Well, I'd thrown away a perfectly good career in mathematics for what? I didn't know. So someone suggested, you're a mathematician, you know all sorts of things, use it to go study the brain. And having no clue what I wanted to do, I said, sure, why not, no harm in that. And I spent the summer reading about neurobiology. First, mathematical neurobiology, but I just said, I really don't understand that. I've got to learn the neurobiology to learn that. And as I began to read that, I said, that's interesting, but I've got to know the biology to read that. And as I wanted to understand the biology, I really needed to know its foundation. So I started learning about genetics. And I sat in on one course and managed to connive and talk a professor uh, of biology at Harvard into letting me moonlight in his lab. And so while I taught the managerial economics students at the business school for several years by day, I moonlighted, moonlighted in labs by night, cloning genes and fruit flies. After a couple years, I somehow talked the business school into giving me a year off, which I took at MIT and worked with biologists working, geneticists working on other organisms, a soil nematode called, called C. elegans. And by utter accident, one Tuesday afternoon at the department seminar was introduced to David Botstein, a yeast geneticist who had recently made some wonderful discoveries and ideas about how to work on human genetics, but they needed a mathematical component that he didn't have, and he couldn't find mathematicians to talk to or geneticists to talk to who knew both. We hit it off. I dropped what I was doing, and I began to work intensely with Botstein for months. He took me along to an international genetics meeting in 1985 and introduced me to people, and the next year invited me to a fateful meeting at Cold Spring Harbor in 1986, which was on human genetics, and it was the site of the fateful debate on the Human Genome Project. All of the distinguished people in the field, the Nobel laureates, were up there debating the Human Genome Project, and then they turned for questions. And although I was quite intimidated by the caliber of, of the speakers, I raised my hand and began to throw myself into the debate. Well, afterwards, several of the senior people came over and said, boy, you said some interesting things. Let's talk about it. A couple weeks later, I found I'd been invited to participate on some follow-up meetings. A couple months later, I'd been asked to co-chair some committees related to the Genome Project, and it became apparent to me that there weren't any experts in this field yet, and I could almost pass for an expert. <laughs> well, 
I was still pretty insecure, and I told this to David Botstein. I said, I don't see how I'll ever get a job in this stuff. I don't look like a standard issue molecular biologist. And he said, you've got it all wrong. It's the standard issue molecular biologists who have a problem. You look different. Anybody, anybody would be glad to have one of you. Maybe not two, but one of you. And indeed, he was right. It became clear that utterly by accident, I'd had a collection of skills in genetics, mathematics, business, and writing, all of which ended up mattering tremendously for the Human Genome Project, which wasn't just biology, but was analysis of data, was indeed, in addition, uh, a large enterprise that required organization for which being at a business school wasn't such a bad idea and for which writing was tremendously important to articulate the ideas. Shortly thereafter, I found I had tenured offers in biology at Harvard and MIT. Year after that, launched the first, one of the first genome centers in the United States, which has grown, it's one of the largest genome centers in the country, building the maps for tracing inheritance and sequencing the human and the mouse genomes. A few years after that, I got involved co-founding a biotechnology company, Millennium Pharmaceuticals, that's grown to nearly 1,000 scientists and a market valuation of over a billion dollars. And a few years after that, I found myself elected as a member at a very young age of 40 of the National Academy of Sciences. I was stunned because I still thought of myself very much as an outsider and an interloper who had just stumbled into this field. I still find myself stunned to have stumbled into one of the most amazing scientific revolutions in history. What brief lessons? can I give you from all of this? Advice for random walkers. Number one, qualifications are much overrated. I am completely unqualified for all of the jobs I have ever held in my life. I have no proper qualifications in business and no proper qualifications in biology to do any of those jobs. Number two, careers are not linear. They are not planned. They are highly nonlinear. The world changes much too fast to admit of that kind of long-range planning. The most exciting things that you will do in your life are things that don't exist today. Be ready for them. Number three, cherish your distractions. They may turn out to be the heart and soul of your life. Number four, surround yourself with the best people you can find, the smartest, the most decent people you can find, because being surrounded by such people, productive collisions occur. Whatever you do, Number five, do it passionately. Throw yourself into it. Even if it's a distraction along the way, even if it isn't where you're eventually going, throw yourself into it. Number six, live at the interfaces. It's where the most interesting things happen. Number seven, fashion the opportunities out of the pieces you have in your life. Don't assemble pieces to fit someone else's mold. Be different. As Botstein told me, they may not want to, but they'll always be glad to have one of you, of whatever you fashion yourself into. And most of all, I want to say to all of you, you're here because of your tremendous achievements, because of your excellence at this young age, because people have great expectations of you and great expectations for you. Loving and supportive people have great expectations. You should appreciate those, that support that, that is implied by those expectations, but be sure, sooner or later, to escape all those expectations and take your own random walks. Have a wonderful time.